Welcome to EM Guidewire, your guide to emergency medicine, brought to you by the residents and faculty from Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Core Concepts of Emergency Medicine. Hey there, Guidewire listeners. Thank you for joining us here for another episode of Core Concepts brought to you by the EM Guidewire team at Carolina's Medical Center. Today, we're going to go down the path of pregnancy, more specifically, trauma in pregnancy. In the studio, we have myself, Mark Kastner, PGY1. Claire Milam, PGY2. And Bryant Allen. But before we get started today, today's episode is brought to you by... Mansplaining. When two guys try to talk to you about changes in pregnancy. Mansplaining. Okay, team, what is your initial gut reaction when you hear overhead, OB trauma code one, 10 minutes out by ground? Ugh, usually I get real hot and sweaty because not only do I have a potentially sick trauma patient en route, I really have two. That's a pretty good point, and that is exactly why we're here today, to help eliminate your fears regarding traumatic injury and pregnancy with a bit of preparation. But wait, bad things don't happen to pregnant people. Unfortunately, the reality is that bad things do happen to pregnant people and a lot more frequently than we would like. In fact, trauma is the leading non-obstetrical cause of maternal mortality in the U.S., and up to 7% of pregnancies are complicated by some form of trauma. That sounds like a lot, um, but isn't trauma something that complicates all of our lives? Why are the pregnant folk all that different? They are different for a ton of reasons, both in pre-traumatic physiology and in expected injury patterns. Before we get into the actual pathology, we should first talk about normal pregnancy physiology because it matters a lot here. Oh, I got this. First off, their abdomen gets larger as they progress along in their pregnancy. By about 20 weeks gestation, their uterus is expected to be at the level of the umbilicus and grows all the way up to the costal margin. This displaces the intestines northward, somewhat protecting the bowel at the expense of exposing the uterus and the fetus. Peritoneal irritation and distension may be slightly less obvious on exam. Exactly right regarding expected abdominal changes. This also pushes the diaphragm up, which can lead to implications if you need to do things like a chest tube down the line. Okay, wait, so how would you know if they have a distended abdomen or if that's just a baby growing there? It's tricky, which is why it's important to know how many weeks gestation they are so you can estimate if they are appropriately gravid or not. Let's also remember that later in pregnancy, the fetus may be lower into the pelvis, increasing the risk of fetal skull trauma, such as a skull fracture in the case of pelvic injuries. Thankfully, the fetus is cushioned by the amniotic fluid, which helps to displace some of the forces from the trauma. Amniotic fluid can also get into the whoa, maternal whoa, 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 blood. Mark, We'll get there. Let's stay on track here. Another crucial physiologic change relevant in trauma is the change in volume status during pregnancy. Plasma volume increases by about 40%, and the red blood cell volume also increases but by a lesser percentage of only about 15 to 25%. This change leads to a lower measured hematocrit, something we call the physiologic anemia of pregnancy. Also, after about week 10 of gestation, mom's cardiac output increases by about one to one and a half liters per minute to help accommodate the placenta, which requires about 20% of the total cardiac output. Wow, 20% is a lot of cardiac output, especially in trauma where every cc of blood can be crucial, and all of that's kind of going toward the fetus instead of the mom. Exactly. These changes impact the mother's new baseline vital signs. Her heart rate can increase by about 10 to 15 beats per minute to help increase cardiac output, but her blood pressure can drop by about 5 to 15 millimeters of mercury in the second trimester from the decreased systemic vascular resistance that the body does in an effort to provide increased uterine blood flow. All right, team, this is a lot of facts. So volume's up, hematocrit's down, heart rate's up, and blood pressure is down. But what's the point here? 
Right, let's see if I can get this. So the mom's baseline plasma volume is increased and her cardiac output is being shunted towards the uterus. As she gets further in pregnancy and has to give more cardiac output to the uterus, her heart rate increases and it decreases the vascular resistance, allowing her to do that more efficiently. If mom presents after a traumatic injury, she may be compensating better than the average person despite significant blood loss. However, her presenting vital signs may also appear abnormal even in the absence of injury. Correct. As stated, this is a tough population, one that requires you to remain ever vigilant. You may need to have a lower threshold for resuscitation. Remember, the patient is functionally anemic at baseline and shunning 20% of her cardiac output toward that uterus. Well, I remember learning in med school that turning a pregnant woman onto her left side can help relieve the IVC pressure due to the gravid uterus, increasing venous return and improving the mom's hemodynamics. It definitely can, preventing something that we like to call supine hypotension syndrome. And this maneuver is recommended in all pregnant patients that present with trauma especially when they are hypotensive. But remember that being on your left side can make it harder to get IV access, to protect a patient's airway, and to maintain spinal precautions. So be careful. You can also perform manual lateral displacement of the uterus to help achieve the same effect. So choose a method, but do it. Perfect. Now, what about the physiological changes to the respiratory system? So in pregnancy, the total minute ventilation increases following a decrease in functional residual capacity of the lungs. This increased respiratory rate leads to a physiologic hypocapnia with an average PCO2 of 30. So if they come in with a normal looking CO2 in the 40s, it may actually be a sign of impending respiratory distress. Pregnant mothers also have a higher O2 requirement because they're providing oxygen for two people and one of them has fetal hemoglobin with a greater oxygen affinity. All of this leads to very little reserve for mom. Geez, with that little reserve, it sounds like there may be a need to be intubated earlier since they can't compensate as long, and we may need to recreate those physiological changes in CO2 levels with our vent settings. You're getting the hang of this. A few more important changes, though. Patient's gastric emptying is slowed down, increasing the risk of regurgitation and aspiration. When you do get ready to intubate, consider stomach decompression if time and acuity allow. But, you know, in trauma, acuity is usually high and the time is usually short. So consider the patient's immediate needs first. One more big change when you're talking about the C and ABCs. As the pregnancy progresses and the pubic symphysis starts to widen, the vessels in the pelvis become engorged. Yikes. So wouldn't that mean that a pelvic fracture could lead to even more blood loss? Yes. And the spleen is also more engorged, making it more vulnerable to injury. Lots of changes with lots of associated risk. Now let's start to think about things that can go wrong that are unique to pregnancy. One that's actually more common than you think is that of placental abruption. Up to 60% of severe traumas result in an abruption, and it accounts for up to 50% of fetal deaths from trauma. I remember getting tested on abruption. That is where the maternal vessels tear away from the placenta and the resulting bleeding causes it to become detached from the uterus. It's really dangerous. It compromises fetal nutrient and oxygen delivery. The only way to definitively diagnose this is by examining the placenta after it's been delivered. Oof, I can tell you that I'd be pretty grumpy if someone took away my food supply. How are we supposed to make that diagnosis in the ED? Well, Mark, you have to start with your physical exam. Inspecting for any vaginal bleeding and uterine tenderness may help key you in, especially in the setting of major trauma. Your classic triad for placental abruption is 1. Abdominal pain, 2. Large for dates uterine size, and 3. Vaginal bleeding. Your classic triad of abdominal pain, large for dates uterine size, and vaginal bleeding is not often present, but is something to keep in mind. Take a look at the fetal heart tracings, and considering the mother's hemodynamics can also give you a clue. Okay, so here's the real question. What about the ultrasound? In this case, ultrasound has a sensitivity of about 24%, but a specificity of up to 96%, making it helpful if you see the abruption, but not if you don't. 
The acute hemorrhage should be isoechoic on the ultrasound, but can also look similar to the surrounding placental tissue if it's starting to clot. This is also why pregnant patients are usually observed in our OB floor with continuous fetal monitoring for about 24 hours. They like to look for signs of fetal distress to help cue them into something worse going on, like the abruption. Cardiotocographic monitoring is sensitive, but not specific for the diagnosis of abruption. So in combination with ultrasound and examination, you can hopefully spot this pathology. If found, delivery is the treatment of choice for this because the fetus no longer has a strong oxygen or nutrient supply. So if we're concerned about abruption, what do we look for on cardiotocographic monitoring? On fetal monitoring, a presence of greater than eight contractions per hour for about four hours is associated with a known increase in adverse outcomes. And if mom is having more than one contraction every 10 minutes, there's about a 20% risk of abruption. I will say a normal fetal tracing with normal physical exam has a negative predictive value for abruption of close to 100%. That's reassuring, but this is all some scary stuff. If someone is having vaginal bleeding, what else do we need to worry about? Oh, Claire, I know this one, uterine rupture. That's when the uterus tears open exposing the fetus to the abdominal cavity. This could be a worry with penetrating trauma or severe blunt trauma. The fetal heart rate can drop very low, and it's a slam dunk diagnosis if you can actually palpate fetal parts outside of the uterus on your exam. This is more common in women who have had a C-section in the past because there will already be some scarring and associated weakening of the uterine tissue. The mortality from this is high because of the massive hemorrhage that can occur. Don't forget about the shunting of cardiac output to the uterus. Treatment for this is urgent delivery by C-section. Thankfully, it's incredibly rare. Okay, guys, I know we briefly mentioned it, but just in case people missed it, do not forget about those engorged pelvic vessels later on in the pregnancy, causing a pelvic fracture to be an even larger source of hemorrhage than in a normal trauma patient. So what if the mom goes into labor? Labor is a real possibility in the setting of trauma. Women may come in contracting following the stress of trauma. They also may have spontaneous rupture of membranes, which is why we ask about a gush or loss of fluid. A cervical check is definitely warranted in the setting of trauma, especially in the case of a viable fetus and if the mother is having contractions. Some nitrazine paper or making a ferning slide can help confirm rupture of membranes, but that is a step that should be done after the mom is stabilized. Now, I can never remember the whole RH thing. Can we talk about that really quick? Yes, we would never leave that out. Actually, anytime a woman is bleeding in the emergency department that's pregnant, we should think about this. The mixing of fetal and maternal blood is more likely in the setting of major trauma, though. If the mother is RH negative, then we need to highly consider giving her Rogam. If the fetal and maternal blood mixes, even to a small degree, the mother can end up developing antibodies to this foreign RH protein and mount an immune response against future children that are RH positive. We don't know the baby's RH status at the time of the trauma, so it's best to err on the side of caution. In my opinion, just give the Rogam if you know that mom's RH negative. I can agree with that. We can use the Kleihauer betke test to quantify how much fetal blood has been mixed with maternal blood. The test has a high specificity but a low sensitivity, so it's helpful if it's positive. The test is mostly used to help calculate how much Rogam is needed based on how much blood was mixed. For our purposes in the ED, you can just use the standard dose of 50 micrograms in women less than 12 weeks and 300 micrograms in women greater than 12 weeks. And remember, this is all given intramuscular. So those are all things very specific to pregnant women who experience trauma. But we still need to remember all of our normal traumatic injuries like hemothorax and femur fractures, right? Very true. We cannot forget the basics. We will still start with our ABCs like all other trauma patients. There are very few changes. For airway, do consider earlier intubation because of the decreased functional residual capacity. In breathing, don't forget the change in PCO2 and how to account for that on the ventilator settings. And if you have to put in a chest tube, remember to put it one to two intercostal spaces higher because of the shift of the diaphragm. And when it comes to circulation, have a higher suspicion for large blood loss despite good compensation from the mother's increased plasma volume. Try to avoid pressors if possible so you don't have to reduce uterine blood flow. 
and if the setting allows for it, have the mom roll over on her left side to help increase venous return or manually displace the uterus. In the case of loss of pulses, you can consider a perimortem C-section, but that is definitely a topic for another day. Got it. Well, we probably need to make sure we check the fetal heart rate after we do that EFAST exam and be sure to do a good pelvic exam also. Definitely agree, but remember that mom is the most important patient in the room. Without maternal well-being, fetal well-being is not guaranteed. Assessing the fetal well-being, although important, should not take the place of maternal evaluation and treatment. We have a low threshold for admitting these patients because if the fetus is considered viable, i.e. more than about 20 to 24 weeks based on your location, then they need at least four to six hours of monitoring. In our shop, we aim for a full 24 hours to more definitively evaluate for possible abruption. So here's the real question. Can we image these patients? We are more hesitant to do so, but yes, you can definitely image them if you need to. You do have the option to shield the uterus with some lead to at least provide some protection. Radiation less than one rad is believed to have little risk. We don't start to see issues until 5 to 10 rads, and that is generally earlier on in pregnancy during organ development. Estimated radiation exposure is different based on the generation of scanner, but on average, a CT of the abdomen is 2.8 to 4.6 rads, CT of the head is less than 0.05 rads, and a CT of the pelvis is 1.94 to 5 rads. Talking with your radiologist in these situations is key to assessing risk, but if you're concerned, you can definitely get the scan. A CT head is actually not that much of a radiation dose. Well, that reminds me, in the setting of major trauma and subsequent seizure, we often worry about intracranial hemorrhage of some sort. But we need to keep in mind in a pregnant woman that eclampsia should be a concern. So when you're seeing a seizure, consider treatment with magnesium, either 6 grams IV or even up to 10 grams IM. Gosh, I sure used to be scared when I heard that overhead page for an OB trauma. But as second year approaches, I'm feeling much more prepared after this, guys. Let me see if I can recap this all. So we always start with our same primary survey of ABCs. We need to keep in mind the physiological changes that can affect both our assessment and interventions to protect those ABCs. Special considerations need to be given to placental abruption, preterm labor, uterine rupture, and pelvic fractures. Make sure to order normal trauma labs and confirm that the type and screen is sent. Send off the KB test to help out our OB colleagues, and don't forget to give her Rogam if she's RH negative. After the EFAST, throw the ultrasound probe on the fetus to get an idea of the fetal heart rate. Normal is about 120 to 160, and if you think you need to image the mother, then do so. But try to be conservative when you can, and have a very low threshold to admit these patients for observation for fetal monitoring. Call the OB team early on to get them involved in your decision making. Little Mark, I'm so proud of you. You did take away a lot from this. Now you can run your OB traumas like a pro. Yeah, well done team. There's a lot more to consider, but running through your ABCs will get you where you need to be. Well everyone, thanks for joining us for some trauma and pregnancy core concepts. Look out for more episodes coming up involving pregnant patients. Thanks for tuning in. From the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studio here at Carolina's Medical Center, this is EM Guidewire. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today. Seems he out. Well, Mr. Hangry. I know you're afraid of uteruses, but like, come <laughs> I'm, on. I'm, honestly, yes, I'm afraid of uteruses. <laughs> Uteri. All right. (laughs) Here I am. I've come to get you. Like, not okay. I also didn't know you were recording, so that's even more embarrassing. Cool. Just turn her over. It'll be fine. (laughs) This is EM Guidewire.